Hello and welcome to the Owl Hoot podcast with me, Caroline Norbury. In each episode, I chat to amazing guests with way more expertise than me on topics covering the environment and sustainability. You'll get to hear the facts on climate change, biodiversity loss and pollution, as well as discover the fabulous actions that individuals and organisations are doing to mitigate and adapt to our changing world. I don't know about you, but I find it reassuring and hopeful that there are so many capable people out there doing great things for our planet, as well as inspiring me to get on and do my bit too. So without further ado, let's get on with this week's episode. Here with me today is Natasha Radcliffe-Thomas, Professor of Marketing and Sustainable Business at the British School of Fashion, Vice Chair of the Costume Society and Editor-in-Chief for Bloomsbury Fashion Business Cases. Early on in her career, Natasha was partner to the award-winning luxury children's wear fashion label, Miss Fleur. Since becoming an academic, her research and teaching covering topics such as sustainability, social enterprise, creativity and consumer behaviour has taken her across the continents of North America, Asia and Europe. She has received numerous awards, including the National Teaching Fellowship Award and co-authored the book Fashion Management, A Strategic Approach. It is with such great pleasure that I'm able to chat with Natasha this morning and share her expertise on sustainability within the fashion industry. So welcome, Natasha, to the podcast. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you so much for inviting me. So I'd like to start with getting a bit of a feel for your career, how you sort of got interested in fashion and how you got interested in sustainability within the fashion model and business. Great. Yeah, good question. I mean, I think for me, fashion's always been part of my life. I've used clothes to express my identity, to form, you know, friendship groups. Um, I was really interested, you know, as a teenager, as many of us are, I was really interested in music. And I think fashion and music are really closely aligned and probably were more so um, when I was a teenager. And I found my love of fashion, I think, through making as well. So when I was younger, I couldn't find the clothes that I wanted to wear because uh, I wanted to look like someone who'd stepped out of the 1960s, I think. Um, and so I you know, used to forage for vintage clothes, but also for secondhand patterns. And I learned, I taught myself how to sew basically so I could wear the clothes that I wanted to wear. And then later on, I mean, I, I always was a maker from that point on. And I had a, a few sort of nascent little fashion businesses with friends and you know, market stalls and that kind of thing that the other, you know, the listeners may ha have done as well. Um, I actually studied economics at university. But then after that, I really wanted to, I suppose, expand my knowledge of fashion. So I then went back and studied fashion part time whilst being a sort of dressmaker designer. And then I think because I enjoyed my fashion education so much, I also then wanted to become a teacher. So I kind of had two parallel careers um, in, you know, as a maker, as a designer, and then also as a fashion educator, which, you know, I've been doing now for for far too long than I think I to remember a really long time um, and actually the sustainability piece really is I would say from the last 10 years or so of my career because you know increasingly we can't help but be aware of the you know negative impacts of fashion so I came into fashion because I loved it and it was a personal way of me expressing creativity but you know um, especially I think in the period when I was living in Hong Kong I became aware you know, visibly in front of me, you know, that the pollution from the fashion industry production in the south of China, 
means that you can't see across Hong Kong Harbour every day. Um, you know, people are displaced in terms of, of work. Um, industries like, you know, heritage tailoring were being kind of decimated by mass production. Um, and so the, in my personal experience, but also in the sort of areas that I was becoming more interested in academically, I started to really put a lens on fashion that, that was a more sustainable view. Um, and that was really, I think, one of the, the tipping points. And then I kind of expanded uh, and developed my, my interest since then. So it's interesting what uh, what you say about very, being very visible in, in Hong Kong uh, with the pollution. When did fashion, or has it always been perhaps polluting and less sustainable than we'd like it? I mean, I, I, I imagine it's been a bit of a, across history, it wasn't as uh, unsustainable as it is currently. What, what, what happened? Well, I think that's a really interesting question because we tend to think about um, fashion as being unsustainable as a kind of modern uh, phenomenon. And to a certain degree, it is, you know, for us that we, we really have experienced this ramping up of production and being more aware of the social and environmental impacts in the last few years. But if you think back to the sort of beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, a lot of the factories and the pollution that we, you know, we experienced in the UK were textile factories, textile mills. So actually fashion textiles, as much as they've had uh, a real positive impact in terms of people's you know, creativity, in terms of developing industries and international trade in a positive sense, it's always sadly been quite an exploitative industry in terms of both people you know, and the environment. So I think sometimes it's hard to put those things sort of in context, but there, there is, there has always been that. I think what's happened in the last... 50 or so years is for us in the UK a lot of the production moved abroad and so we weren't seeing that impact so directly and what we were experiencing is a massive you know people talk about democratization of fashion because you know in the past in maybe our grandmother's time there wasn't easily accessible clothing that you could you know run to the supermarket and pick up a t-shirt or go online and, and have something delivered you know within an hour it and people you know had different relationships with clothes uh, on the main you know people would have their sunday best and you know people would have their winter coat that they would hope would last for years and years and we've just really got used to having very cheap always available fashion. Um, and you could say that at the beginning of that kind of model, that was quite liberating because people, you know, could dress up more, they could express themselves more. It was an expanding industry, but it's just, um, I suppose, tilted and tipped so far into unsustainable practices. And also they've become much more visible because of things like social media and because of fashion activism, which has been present all along, but has just got a lot more visibility recently. Cool. That's a really nice overview of, of where where we've come from and where we're at. Um, in terms of the actual process, then, which parts of um, in, ter in terms of you know getting your material and processing material and then uh, selling it to different uh, to different places and the consumer end, which parts of that sort of life cycle of of the clothing is problematic? or maybe most problematic. <laughs> I was going to say, unfortunately, there are lots of problematic um, areas. But if we think about, I mean, I think one of the main impacts and one of the things that people have started to really talk about a lot more recently is that the process has been a linear system. It's been a kind of take, make and waste system. It's been a really extractive um, and exploitative system. So we've really taken for granted that materials are there 
you know, like cottons there or, or polyesters there. We haven't thought too much about where they've come from and the impacts, you know, along the way. Um, one of the things that I became really aware of when I was living um, in Hong Kong, I attended a, a fashion conference and I met the founder of Redress, which is um, a textile waste NGO operating and they have the, the world's largest sustainable fashion um, design competition. And she really opened my eyes to this idea of pre-consumer textile waste because we often don't really think about how much waste is built into systems. And you know, the idea that when you know, factories are producing garments, as, as much as they try to be efficient with the use of materials, there are all the offcuts, and then there are the extra samples, and then there's the overproduction. So there was, there's such a lot of waste built into the system. And then similarly, you know, working with, with them and with others, you become aware of the design decisions that people make are really, you know, so important in terms of kind of designing that out. So I think looking at it a slightly different way, and I've been lucky enough to do some work with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and their whole idea is around circularity. Um, and so that you design products for longevity, you know, design things in a way that they can be used for longer, but you also think right back at the beginning of a design process, you know, what materials are you using? Are they materials, you know, that are, that are extractive and are gonna be, you know, like if we think about single use plastics or something, or are they materials that, that can, you know, that, that are more, you know, we have more regenerative systems to support them. But then it's also, this is why it's so complicated. You know, you think about materials, um, most of our clothing is made from either cotton or polyester. Now polyester is basically plastics. Um, and although we're having some developments in terms of things like uh, polyester made from recycled, you know, glasses and uh, you know bottles and things, mm -hmm. it's actually still plastic. So I think some people in the circular space would say, well, it's still you know a waste. It's still that's not going to biodegrade, however many times you know it, it gets processed. But also things like cotton, we've become really over reliant on. And although it is debatable the extent to which they, how much water they use, etc., um, pesticides, they all have a negative impact. And I think in the last few years, the industry itself has realised that we can't just keep more and more and more and more and so we have to look at those um you know choices of materials but also the processes that go along with them and then i would say one of the other things and this is really wrapped up with fast fashion is the you know global shipping um so whether things are if things are being air freighted around the world so that has a big impact and then also actually along with the fast fashion thing i would say the returns so lots of people have got used to shopping and, and maybe online and thinking well i'll buy two or three i'll see which one i like i'll send it back it doesn't matter and that has a big kind of impact and often those clothes don't get resold they just get destroyed or go to landfill but then also within even the retail space you know, if you, anyone's worked in retail, you'll be aware there's lots of things like lots of plastics in terms of packaging, coat hangers, shop fittings, many things that are not really sustainable there. And then, you know, when you take that garment home or you have it delivered to you, there's also how you use it and how you launder it. So there's big questions about, you know, people have got used to washing things much more frequently because many of us have access to, you know, washing machines at home. Lots of people might use tumble dryers. There's sort of energy usage as well. So I think, I mean, it's such a, it's such a great question because there are so many different impacts and this is what makes it so difficult. And that's why, you know, certain groups of people in the sustainable space just say the most sustainable garments are the ones you already have. You know, don't yeah. don't get new ones because you know you've already got them. They exist already. Keep rewearing what you've already got. 
I mean, that's a great starting point, isn't it? Uh, let's just stop shopping <laughs> and that, that'll sort it. Um, but obviously there will be times where people will want to buy new stuff, um, especially- in the Well, I'd say, I mean, it is and it isn't because, you know, the other thing is, if, you know, as a maker myself, there's a certain degree to which designers, you know, want to create. It's part of the creative process. It's part of human activity. So there's that level of it. But there's also the fact that, that textiles and fashion is a, a big um, global business. And it's actually quite a low barrier business for emerging and developing economies. So many emerging and developing economies, you know, work within the fashion and textiles sector because it is, you know, you know, there's demand there and it's a way for people to industrialize and develop. I mean, it's not necessarily a problem that things are made. It's maybe the quantities, the techniques and the exploitation, because, you know, the, the social sustainability piece is about people being valued for their inputs and for their labor. And what I would say, again, the fashion industry has been really guilty of is maybe, you know, lauding the designers at one end, although maybe you know, we've had a lot of conversations in fashion about people having too many demands on their creativity, but actually the, the people whose hands, and a lot of fashion is still, you know, handmade, those people often are not seeing any of the rewards. So there's a lot of money in fashion. It's a big, you know, multi-trillion dollar business, but it's not fairly distributed. So, I mean, so actually just say, well, let's stop shopping, which is what some people would advocate for, would obviously have knock-ons. And we saw that during the pandemic when factories closed down, when shops were closed, that there were a lot of people, um, primarily in countries like Bangladesh, who suddenly weren't being paid. You know, orders were cancelled by, you know, Western brands, um, meaning that factories didn't have, you know, they'd already invested in the materials, they couldn't pay, the factories closed. I mean, we have some of these things I say it's it becomes really complex. And I think it's really difficult as an individual to sort of navigate all of these different kind of choices when really a lot of them are systemic and they all kind of relate into each other. Yeah, I mean, you cover quite nicely there, the fact that it is so complex and it touches, it isn't just about buying the right material or not buying or it, it, it's, it's so many parts of the process. And you also touch on the, the equity and the equality or inequality of the business itself across um, across the world. So it, it just touches everything, doesn't it? Um, I'm just going to pick out a few things that, that, that have been sort of raised there, one of the, which was the material, which obviously uh, is not an easy choice either from what you've said about it either being plastic or about being cotton. And perhaps that uh, uses a lot of water and a lot of resources. Is there a better material when, if you are going to look for, for um, clothing, what is, where, where should your eye be drawn to? Yeah, I mean, a great question. I think, you know, what I've learned from speaking to a lot of people um, in the industry and a lot of different um, experts is actually one thing if we think about circularity. So if we think of end of life first, what's gonna happen to your garment? So is it a material that's suitable for the job? So if you are someone who's really outdoorsy and you're going hiking or you're doing performance sports, then you probably will go with uh, some kind of a synthetic because that may have the qualities. I mean, it might be lightweight, it kind of be wicking, you have lots of intelligent fibers and that might be the right material um, for that. If you're having something just sort of for everyday wear, then 
probably going for natural fibres. But the main thing in terms of circularity and end of life is to have monofibres. So you have one fibre because at the moment it's quite difficult. If we think about trying to recycle fabrics and textiles, it's quite difficult to do that when they're mixed. So actually having something that's 100% something is probably better um, there. And as I say, you know, the reason that we have cotton and polyester is obviously because they are efficient. One of the things I think around polyester is the, is the um, it's long-term future in terms of the fact that it's a byproduct of the sort of petrochemical industry. And so how much do we want to be reliant on that? And the fact that if you have clothing made from, you know, polyester, it won't biodegrade at the moment. I mean, there are obviously uh, technological developments that are helping with recycling of things, but it's not really, um, it's not really there yet in, in any kind of scale. So we kind of want to think about those types of things. So I think it's really matching. I think what lots of people are trying to say now is maybe buy fewer things and buy better quality. But I do think this is where, you know, governments um, and industry bodies have a role to play in helping us with those decisions and giving us that information. So if you know people are interested, there's several different sort of apps, things like the Good On You app um, that sort of rate fashion brands in terms of their sustainability across different areas and that can kind of maybe help people. But I think one thing that's really interesting to think about in terms of materials is how you know we're trying to look to alternatives and maybe start to reintroduce fabrics like sort of linens and, and hemps that have been used in the past are actually quite sustainable well are very sustainable materials can be grown close if we're thinking about the UK close to home and I think it's really interesting that some projects about sort of relaunching those into the kind of fashion space as well as having some kind of alternative materials things you know made from food waste and that type of thing so there's a really interesting kind of developments in that kind of um, material space but I think for many people one of the things is we don't often have a choice because um, you know if you go to a lo your local high street or you go online and I mean you don't have the choice of what things are, are made of so I think that's you know one of the things where we really need to be pushing for brands and businesses to be supported to make the right decisions in the first place for us and and to help the consumer in that sense yeah. um, and support you know accessibility to more sustainable materials but I mean another thing I would say in that area is there seems to be a bit of a renaissance in, in clothes swapping in second enjoy secondhand clothes and in mending and things like that so I mean again I think there are um, other choices for not buying new and even within designer brands we've seen people like Stella McCartney when she she helped um, develop the environmental profit and loss sort of accounting system within the caring luxury group and when they actually looked at the impact of their materials they found that the cashmere wool had a, a really such a high disproportionate impact so then they made the decision to only use recycled cashmere in their collection so I think things like that is like when you have the knowledge and information um, in a kind of audited credible way then it helps brands and businesses make those decisions kind of for us so we don't have to um, have all of that responsibility um, but I would say for a lot of people and in my own research a lot of people in the sustainability space actually don't mind not so don't mind what they buy but they'll make different choices if they're buying it secondhand so if they're in a charity store okay the the thing already exists you know you're not adding to that you're keeping it out of landfill so I think that's something to think as well if you know if you're buying from a charity store then you I don't know you've almost got a bit of a, a better a golden ticket with your choices the garments already exist you're not supporting any kind of 
evil fashion empire that you don't want to because it's going to charity. Sure. A couple of things there. One being the, the, the last point about charity shops. I think it's very easy, isn't it, for people to think, oh, well, if I don't want my clothes, I'll just send them to charity shops. Maybe you can just highlight the issue with that premise of, uh, of just sending it all to the charity shop. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I'd say is that unfortunately, quite a significant number of people actually throw clothes in the bin which I mean I can't imagine but they don't even go so far as to get into the charity store but yes I think one of the things that the the pandemic showed us is the absolute volumes of stuff that people have um, you know in certain parts of the world and that they have disposable they kind of consider them and so lots of people did wardrobe clear outs and, and chucked it all off to the charity store which became sort of overwhelmed. Um, and so there are some really good programs with some of the charity stores where they promise that nothing will go to landfill. But in the past, a lot of, you know, the things that we've cast off have been shipped off around the world. Um, and that sort of continues to happen in certain parts of the world. And so then those local markets get overwhelmed with discarded goods. And that really undermines the ability for local clothing markets to kind of exist. And that's, a, you know, again, that's the, one of those externalities that we don't always think about. So you might think taking your know, batch of clothes off to the charity store is a really great thing that you're doing um, and not really realising that. So, I mean, again, it's one of the things I, I guess about, you know, wearing your own thing. I think, it's, you know, the, there's been a few, um, you know, people in this space talking about, you know, clearing out your life, only keep things that you love and all of that type of thing, which has actually just led to lots of people chucking stuff out. I think interestingly with fashion, often if you don't change shape or size too much, you can reintroduce your own clothing into your wardrobe or I think those kind of clothes swapping. And we've seen that as well, you know, happening. There's actually apps that help you do that. If you have some, you know, great pieces in your wardrobe that you don't always want to wear that you can actually rent out. So I think there's all sorts of interesting kind of developments in that kind of space. But the other thing I would say about charity stores is it's something, um, you know, in London and in parts of the UK, we take for granted, but that kind of, option doesn't exist uh, you know equally in in all parts of the world so i think again sometimes we think of things as a solution locally but people don't always have access to that i mean i think where there's one of the things that we're really gifted with in the uk is we have a really good um, kind of network of charity stores and, and people like oxfam who you know curate fashion collections and and will you know have pop-ups um, and are really promoting that i think that's really great but that's not happening everywhere I think the whole premise of bringing in that whole circular idea of keeping everything going is something to be mindful of, isn't it? And and thinking about, it's a very sim similar story in lots of ways to um, how we buy just things in general about um, our attitude to it is it is not dissimilar in, in lots of different industries. With, with the fashion in particular, it's so global. If you are going to purchase something high quality that you intend to sort of keep and reuse or share or whatever, does it matter if it's not made locally? I mean, I don't even know if it's that easy to buy <laughs> clothes that are actually made in the UK, but should we be mindful of whether it says made in China or made in Taiwan or wherever it might be? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing, especially because I've done a lot of um, research about uh, creativity in in China um, specifically I think we often have these sort of badges where we assume a made in either implies good quality or bad quality and what I would say in terms of the social sustainability is you know we have sweatshops in the UK 
So we know that we had the big boohoo kind of um, scandal in Leicester. So just, you know, associating a, a geographic location with a, an indicator of sustainability is not necessarily um, one that you can do, unfortunately. I think some of this, I mean, fashion is a really lovely, in a positive sense, it really can be a lovely global conversation. So I think it's really great. One of the things, um, I mean, I'm not really traveling at the moment, but when I've traveled in the past, I often like to buy fashion where I'm traveling. And that might actually be in a charity or a vintage store or a local designer, um, because it's something that will kind of encapsulate and you'll take it with you. And then when you wear that, you know, have a lovely big red woolen skirt I bought in Amsterdam when I was at a fashion conference there, I bought it in a vintage store. And every time I wear that, I've got those associations. Similarly, I bought a beautiful pleated um, skirt when I was in Yunnan in Southwest China. And uh, that became my kind of conference skirt. And it's a real conversation starter. People often really admire the technique and they're interested, you know, is that South American? Is it people are sort of guessing game of where that textile is from? So I think it would be a shame to say we're not allowed to have things from other parts of the world. But I think more the problem, I suppose, in the, the, the negative side of the globalization is that mass production and that uh, people have, I guess, taken advantage of different trade rules to then flood markets in other parts of the world. And I, I guess, again, it comes down to the value piece, doesn't it? And it's it's because labor has been become under or is undervalued in different parts of the world, you know, including in the UK, if we think about those kind of sweatshop things, that actually that's why lots of production happens around the world. And I think it's the shipping of low high volumes of low quality goods that actually aren't necessarily going to get sold and might just go straight almost straight into landfill and that's the question that really needs to be addressed but I don't think personally that that is an individual's responsibility but I do think if it's something you're interested in then by all means you know look at some of these apps and look at lots of businesses are making it much more um, what we call transparent about who they're working with, which factories they're supporting, because there's some great, you know, sustainable factories in Asia, in Turkey, in different parts of the world. So, um, and I think if it's also garments that you're going to keep, wear multiple times and value, then you can kind of, that will offset all of those things across its its lifetime. Um, but I think, and also I think what some companies are doing is, you know, they're shipping by sea rather than, um, air freight and it's kind of building into this idea of slow fashion where you you wait for things it's not an immediate um, reward you don't just sort of click and it's and it's there so I think that those are some things that we could think about as well. I, I really like the fact that using the word value in, in many different ways in terms of valuing the people that, that, that make your product but also the items of clothing that you have or that you're going to purchase that you have ascribed rather than perhaps valuing it this will look good once when i go to such and such you you're associating the value of it with this is you know this is where it was made this is where i saw it you know the whole journey of where you were at in your life and what other people say about it that's the kind of value you're you're ascribing to your clothing which i really really like um i wonder slightly going uh, off of a, a, a bit of a, a different tack in that because of your uh, position of educating you're you're a, a great spot to 
influence new people coming into the fashion industry and as you say it's not it's not about it's not just about consumers making choices and it's um and it's certainly not about just the designers having impact either it's it's got to it's got to be societal government uh, all, all manner of different levels but i from your own perspective in terms of what you can do uh, with your students do they come in and are they awakened by your ideas on sustainability or are they already coming in with the idea i'm going to change the fashion business that's a great question now i would say that's really changed in quite a short period of time so i think well i know when i came back to london in 2012 um, i was asked to set up a, a new program in fashion marketing and i wanted to um, you know thread sustainability through it and even within the sort of uh, educational space there was a bit of pushback on that because it was seen as a sort of bit of add-on or, or well, here's a module or here's one guest speaker who will come in and talk about sustainability it's this very niche area and I think part of that was because of the complexity and people didn't really understand it and I think as well at that time a lot of the conversation was about materials and environment. And I have, although I've worked as a designer, latterly the education space I've worked in is more fashion business and, and marketing. And so even from the, you know, education institutions themselves weren't really super keen on that being more than an, a niche area. But what I did see very shortly, you know, after launching that program, which started in 2014, that actually students coming onto the program, they didn't necessarily talk about sustainability in that term, but they talked about aspirations to change the world. And it was a really interesting switch because previously to that, if you'd ask students what their aspirations were, which you often do at the beginning of a program, they might say, well, I want to work for Chanel. Now, I'm not saying that that's changed and people do still want to work for Chanel, but they were starting to say, I want to help people. Um, I want to educate people. And it was a sort of a bit of an ambiguous, but it was really, um, you know, amazing and delightful to see. Now, at that point, I started um, a sustainability sort of elective and the first cohort was very small because not so many students were interested in it. But over the each year, that number grew and grew. And I think now we're seeing that that's the number one topic that students, not just within fashion, but lo lots of students are really interested in this. And I think because fashion is something that touches all of our lives, it's quite an accessible subject. And also I think because people like Fashion Revolution have been so successful with their communications of bringing this to people's attention. I think it's a, definitely an area that people want to get involved in. So, you know, when I started um, work at the British School of Fashion, where I am now, I was brought in to, to amongst other things, to develop a module in sustainable luxury. But I think students across the piece find this area so fascinating. And I think what's been great is to see how, when you introduce some of these areas of environmental and social impact, how students can recognize these very quickly. So I was working um, last week with a group of students. We were talking about a social enterprise called Tengri, who I'm very interested in, I've done some research about. Um, they were founded by a social worker um, who went to Mongolia and was, I suppose, really depressed by the, the level of poverty of the, the yak herders and wanted to do something positive to impact their lives. So she created a luxury brand with a luxury fiber, Yakshmir, which is the yak fiber. It's a fascinating story. Um, so I, we were looking at that as a case study and the students really recognized all of the sort of, I suppose, influences and impacts within that in quite a sophisticated way and could relate that to their own lives. And I think increasingly we're seeing, I mean, not just from my own anecdotal experience, but we're seeing from the research that um, especially younger people, but also sort of mid-career, people are wanting to work with purpose. 
Now they might define that in different ways, but they're they're kind of scrutinizing fashion businesses in different ways. And they're asking questions, whether that be about, you know, gender pay gaps, whether that be about cultural appropriation, you know, whether that be about diversity, you know, behind the camera as well as in front of it. So I think it's really um, pleasing to see how this kind of level of personal activism is actually coming from students themselves. And I think that's what's so fascinating because, you know, sometimes people say, well, do, you know, what does it matter what students think because they're not going to have that much influence. But I've always thought of our students as integral to the industry, the young fashion professionals. And I've always worked to try and empower people to understand, you know, that they will ha have the opportunity to make choices and that they can make informed choices. So the idea of kind of, you know, education around sustainability is not to tell people what to do, but it is to empower people with um, enough, in enough information and the curiosity and to also challenge and ask questions. So when we launched the sustainable, you know, luxury module, some of the things we were thinking about is why and what if. So I think that's a really interesting space for students to be in. I like that a lot because I think getting curious about about it is is the way of discovery, isn't it? And and finding that their own route through where they want to go, uh, but also being, as you say, if they've got the information, they can make informed choices um, through the, through that sort of curiosity and extension of their knowledge. What are your hopes? within uh, within your current role that you hope to achieve in the future? I think we're already, um, that's a great question, thank you. I think I'm already seeing the fruits of that. I think just engaging even, you know, with the small cohort of students that we have on our MBA luxury brand management programme, just seeing how they've really picked up and run with this. One of the really interesting um, you know, we're based in London. It's a really multicultural city, as you know, and we have uh, students from all parts of the world. And one of the aspects that I'm particularly interested in is these sort of cultural heritage aspects of sustainability. And it's been really interesting. The last cohort of dissertation students, many of them looked at sustainability, what the impacts were and what it could mean, you know, in their home countries. And that's really interesting for me. So I'd really like to that to be expanded so that our understandings of sustainability are more nuanced, that we understand that people have, you know, we have similar but also different cultural practices and understandings, and that we really empower people to work within their own communities um, to shape the sustainability agenda. So it's not something that's being kind of placed on people, but it's something that people are part of. And that's the really, I mean, that's the, the reason I like working or I really love working in sustainable fashion. It's a very collaborative community space. Um, and I think that's the, one of the things, you know, that I'm happier than, than anything. I think if we're bringing our students and young professionals to be part of that and that they're the advocates um, and that they're the change makers. So I think that's sort of uh, one of my hopes. And I think we're seeing that enacted. And I think a lot of brands and businesses, whether it's whether it's cynical or whether it's heartfelt, are actually recognised that they need to listen to the voices of, of younger people and to empower them if we're going to kind of solve all of these huge challenges. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think um, you spoke that very well in that companies will will want to be seen to be doing something, even if 
they're not quite at the point of actually doing something really, really good yet. <laughs> they're certainly wanting to be seen to be uh, doing Yeah, and I mean, that can be problematic and we can talk about things like greenwashing and be cynical, but I think whatever the motivation is, if people are being pushed, if governments, mm. um, organisations are being pushed to that and to be responsive to these questions, then I think ultimately we have positive outcomes. Yeah. So how then do you see 2050, 30 odd years, just under 30 years away? Do you think we'll be in a much better, if that's the right word, landscape in terms of the fashion business? Yeah, I mean, again, a really interesting question. I think there's two ways we could go. We could be really um, pessimistic and cynical and say, you know, we're at a high road to, highway to disaster. We have so many problems and they're insurmountable. And if we don't act, you know, we've got the climate change, obviously, um, being this, this huge sort of impact that the fashion industry contributes to. But I'd also say that fashion is reflective of culture. And so I think if we see these sort of movements to more positive understandings with the right support, I think fashion could be, you know, I'd really love it if fashion could go back to what it was, I guess, when I was younger, maybe I was naive, but it was more of the glamour and the appreciation of the creativity. And it was less um, about the exploitative practices. I think we're well aware of those now, and it just takes collective action to deal with them. Um, I think fashion is a really hugely creative space. It's also not one thing. I mean, it's a massive industry for lots of operations. So I would like to see from the positive side that with a lot of you know energy going into it, that we're in a much better space and we can be celebrating creativity um, and sort of global cooperation in a fashion space, um, as opposed to, to counting up its many problems and impacts. That would be my hope. Yes, I hope that too. And I wonder, just as an add-on to that, uh, you've made me wonder, I always think of fashion being driven by young people, and that may be just my own perception. If, if that is the case, maybe that's more hopeful because obviously it's their futures at stake. Is, is, that, is that just... Um, uh, Am I just imagining that it's young people driving fashion? <laughs> well, I think fashion has a youth obsession, and that has to be recognised. But I also, as I you know, alluded to, fashion is not one thing. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, I was invited to speak at a menopause cafe a couple of weeks ago about fashion and women in the menopause. And, you know, at the start of our conversation, I was talking about how fashion is about identity. And I think there's a lot of space for fashion to help people celebrate their lives and identities at all different um, ages. And I think that's one of the things recently. And I think social media, one of its positives maybe has been to give people at all different ages and styles spaces to express themselves so people who you know don't work in fashion but have interesting styles can can share those people can look and search for inspiration and celebrate that so I think it's actually um, it can reach out across all ages but we have been in a period where you know youth has been particularly celebrated in, in certain parts of the media and we definitely have focused on that and I guess that's a natural kind of cycle but I actually think fashion you know should be for everyone in a positive way. Excellent. I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you said that actually <laughs> as a midlife woman. <laughs> so finally, uh, Natasha, um, I wonder what if any changes you've made as you came into sort of uh, more of a sustainability angle, did it change things in your own life, whether it be fashion or otherwise? Yeah, I think for me personally, Understanding more about sustainability, I've recognised that some of my um, habits, behaviours and likes have been sustainable without me naming them that. And I think probably, you know, listeners will recognise that as well. So, you know, 
I like making things. I've always actually liked repairing things. I, I thrifted and bought things secondhand. So those sort of behaviors when I was uh, you know, doing them, I wasn't thinking of it specifically as being sustainable. But I think the biggest change has really been about advocating you know, for sustainability within the education space, because that is my sphere of influence and understanding these more nuanced uh, ways. And especially, I think, pushing that social side of sustainability and the kind of cultural side. So I think the changes I've made there may be um, other things that I shine a light on. I always try to be positive and I've tried to showcase brands, businesses and, and um, practices that are doing good in fashion because ultimately I really do, you know, believe it in fashion as a as a positive force. I think um, recently maybe I would think more about purchasing. I think definitely the thought process you can't ignore that because you want to be able to sort of, you know, walk the walk yourself. <laughs> you don't want it just to be a purely academic um, endeavor. And I think that's that can be challenging. And I think that helps you also understand the challenges that. that that other people have and recognize maybe the privileged position you can be in with this. And I think that recognizing those complexities, um, but I, and I'm sure some of this spills over into sort of friends um, and, and people who observe what I'm wearing, you know, in, in the wider world and, and ask about it. And that leads to conversations. So um, I'm not sure if that answered your question. Yeah, no, absolutely did. No, no, spot on. Yeah, Great. that was a nice broad approach to that, um, that answer. So thank you very much. It's been really interesting, Natasha, uh, hearing about what is a very <laughs> complex um, topic. So thanks for engaging with me on that today. You're really welcome. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. conversation about sustainability in fashion could have been quite a miserable one when you consider pollution, clothing waste and poor working conditions. Natasha, however, managed to leave me feeling upbeat about a more circular system for clothing and content with my existing wardrobe. What struck me in particular was valuing clothing items for how they come into your possession, how they make you feel and the connections to memories they offer, rather than just referencing them to one single night out. To find out more about Natasha, see the links in the show notes. I'd like to thank Andy Shaw for audio editing, Jeremy Jones for providing the music, and to you for listening. If you want to hear more stories of people doing great things that positively impact our environment, check out my previous conversations or click subscribe for future ones. Please do rate, review and share the podcast too. It really helps others find it. Until next time, bye for now.